The book of Exodus, and uh, I said we'll start in chapter 14, get a little bit of background here. Uh, we've been looking at this idea of the gospel according to Moses, that there really is good news, even to a what we sometimes call ourselves, even to a New Testament people. There is good news from the very beginning to the very end of God's Word. There's gospel just slathered all over it and through it. And, and so we can see these things even in the life of this one servant, one among many, uh, named Moses. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning here. Now, part of what we've seen is Moses as just a human being. Okay? He has an incredible story. There's, there's his birth. Uh, in a time of oppression, and uh, some of the women in his life had to do some pretty incredible things and take some serious, serious risks in order to save his life. There was an edict that every child, every male child under two be killed, and of course he was one of those. And so his mother floats him down the river in a basket. His sister follows along. I remember as a kid in Sunday school, flannel graph, you know, the flannel graph reads and the flannel graph girl right behind him, right? And so you would... But that's what she did. She, she kind of made her way, watching to make sure that her little brother was going to be all right. God uses her to make an arrangement with Pharaoh's daughter as, as Moses floats right up to where she and her group were, were bathing for the day. And she takes this child in as her own and raises him. And God, by His providence and by a pretty good idea by His sister, uh, places His own mother as His nanny during that whole time. She, and we don't have a lot of information on this, but we know the fruit of her work. She clearly instilled in Moses, even in Pharaoh's house, who he really was, what his people were really about. And so he grew up understanding that he was a Hebrew, one of the, the Israelites, a, the chosen people of God. He, he understood that he probably had been placed where he was in order to somehow be a part of bringing freedom to the people of God. Uh, he blows it, and there's no other way to put it. He sees an, an Israelite being mistreated by an Egyptian slave master who was, who was beating him unfairly. Most beatings are unfairly. And uh, he's, he's beating him unfairly, and Moses gets angry with righteous indignation, but he doesn't handle that, that righteous indignation in quite the right way. He ends up murdering this guy, hiding the body, hoping no one saw him, thinking no one did. The next day, another guy, he was breaking up a fight, and the guy says, well, who are you to talk to me about fighting? I know you killed an Egyptian. He gets scared, runs off, and, and is in exile for decades. God comes to him in the form of the burning bush and speaks to him, Moses. And so Moses approaches cautiously, kind of scared. God speaks to him about the mission he has in order to set the people of Israel free. All this time, Moses looks at his own weaknesses. He gives excuse after excuse of why he shouldn't be the one who's picked. He shouldn't go. God can surely find somebody else. He says, I can't speak. God says, no problem. But I did make your mouth, and I think I know how to use it. And he says, well, what if they don't listen to me? They'll listen to you. Trust me. I'll prove it. He does the whole staff and snake thing to show him that his power... Just one excuse after another, Moses brings up, God knocks down, until finally Moses goes, I think he's getting mad, maybe I'd better just go. Okay, That's, that's, that's uh, Exodus chapter 4, where that happens. In 5, Moses gets, finally just gets 
his, his ducks in a row and says, okay, God says go, I'm going to go. It's not the last time he'll make excuses, okay? Scattered throughout Exodus 5 to Exodus 13 is Moses' obedience, and sometimes, uh, God, I'm not, still not sure I'm the right guy. You know, a few, few questions he's got, a few fears he's got, but he does keep going anyway. Okay? Over and over again, God keeps telling him, No, Moses, I chose you. I'll take care of it. Where I send you, I'll also equip you. You just go do it. And so Moses does, faithfully, courageously, you know, his faith and his courage building each time he goes where by the end of the thing, Aaron can't even get a word in, his, his spokesperson. His spokesperson can't even get a word in because he just starts, starts talking himself. And so, I don't know if Moses ever tweeted or not, but he didn't do it during, during church. The, uh, he, he sits there and, and, and goes in and confronts Mo, uh, Pharaoh. Moses probably doesn't, he probably does have to confront Moses. We all have to confront ourselves. But he confronts Pharaoh over and over again in that whole story of the plagues where God basically is taking one false idol of the Egyptians after another and knocking it down. Each of those was symbolic of an Egyptian faith belief and part of their trust. And over and over again he says, oh, that's what you trust in? Boom, knock it down. That's what you trust in? Boom, knock it down. And he just shows them one after another, I am the one true God. And you're going to listen to me, Pharaoh. I don't care how stubborn you get. Finally, Pharaoh says, you know what? Take them. I don't want them anymore. Anybody from the old school that read Ransom of Red Chief? Anybody ever? No? My mom is a teacher and she would have assigned it to you because she could identify. I'm sure she was talking about one of my brothers. But it's, it's Ransom of Red Chief is where the, they, they kidnap this kid and he's so obnoxious they're almost ready to pay them to take the poor kid back. And so this was, this was kind of the thing with Pharaoh. He finally just said, kind of like the unjust judge in the Gospel of Luke, he says, listen, I don't care about God and I don't care about you, but get out of my face. And he sends him away. And so they go out triumphant, triumphant, uh, and knowing that it is God who delivers them. The whole Passover thing has happened by the time we get to this point. The Egyptians have lost their firstborn sons. The Israelites have been miraculously spared. They are going out now and should be walking out there with their chests high and just excited about everything that God has done. That's not totally the way that the story goes, if you're not familiar with it. So, Exodus 14, let's jump down to verse, verses 5 through 9. I'll have these up here or there on your thing. <clears throat> this is from the ESV. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? What we, uh, I lost it. What is, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all, pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and, and excuse me, and overtook them and camped at the sea by that place in front of Baal Zephon. Okay, so Pharaoh looks around. There was something that caught my eye in reading this, and it kind of it helps with different translations. Uh, sometimes what you can catch, and I like to look at several at the same time. I think it might have been the NIV that made this even stand out a little bit more. But look at verse uh, 
5 at the end there. What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? This wording, might, you might not catch it. I, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it's kind of funny. Whenever, and I don't know how this got shaped, if it was, you know, Charlton Heston's fault or Sunday school or just my own reading, I don't know. But in my mind, a lot of times when I picture this, I think of Pharaoh as, as simply being uh, such a proud man, such an angry man that this has happened, such a controlling man. Now, the idea that these guys would go off and, and just take off and with a lot of his country's treasure and gold, that's part of the story too, uh, they, were, they were allowed to loot on, their, on the way out, so to speak that he's just so put out over the whole thing that he just changes his mind and says, no, they're not going anywhere. I am not letting them go. But it's not quite like that. And again, if you've got the NIV, this may be more obvious than that. The, the wording here, probably the best wording is, uh, now this says, uh, verse 5, let Israel go from serving us. Some of the translations will put it as, how are we going to make do without Israel serving us? Now think about that for a second. This is kind of funny to me. Pharaoh looks up. Maybe he got up in the morning. Maybe he called for something to be done. Maybe he wanted lunch. And he claps, servants, ham sandwich right now. I want my sandwich. And so maybe he does something like that. Nobody comes. Nobody answers. In some lesser house, someone gets up. A man is ready for his bath to be run. Where is his servant to run his bath and to haul in the water? Another man gets up who owns a farm. All of his farmhands are gone. How is he going to bring in the crop? And everybody in Egypt starts looking around saying, uh-oh, what are we going to do? We don't realize what we just did. We're going to have to work. I told Tanya, I said, this feels like America, verse 5, doesn't it? Doesn't that feel like us? You get rid of all the workers and all of a sudden you go look around and go, well, wait a minute, I wanted a quarter pounder with cheese. How am I going to do that? You know, you fire somebody and then all of a sudden you, you go, oh, well, you mean i got to run to the post office myself? Yeah. And this is what happens in Egypt. They all of a sudden realize their life was only so good because they were exploiting other people. And so Pharaoh says, well, we can't live without servants. I gotta have my maid, I gotta have my butler, I gotta have my cook, I gotta have my, my guys to, to to be hands out on the farm. There's no way I can do this myself. I can't run a country under conditions like this. And so this is the reason he sends his army after the Israelites. Because the Egyptians had gotten lazy and couldn't do their own work. Now what are we gonna do? And so he sends his army after. There's a couple of things there. There's probably a whole bunch of parenthetical lessons there. You don't have to worry. There's probably one you're not wanting me to get into. And I'm not going to because we're going to look at this one. The, the situation with Israel was one, obviously, of slavery. Where we are without Christ is also one of slavery. This is one of those gospel moments, okay? If you're looking for these gospel according to Moses moments, this is one of them. Finish the verse. When the Lord sets you free, you are free. Who said it? Indeed. Okay. 
The rest of you have homework, all right? I left it only one word out, so that should have been an easy one. Uh, the rest of you have it. When the Lord sets you free, you are free indeed. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. I'm going to just do the Jesus thing and say, it is written. That's your homework. You'll be able to Google it. The, uh, this is one of the things we need to remember, okay? The, the Israelites didn't remember this. We'll get to that. They didn't remember this at first. When Pharaoh changes his mind, he goes to re-enslave the Israelite people. This is his goal. So he picks out his elite forces, his best chariots, 600 of them. Okay, this is probably a little bit like sending the seals after you. These are not wimpy guys. These are his best. And he sends them after the Israelites. I guarantee you, you know what I'm talking about with what's up there. All of us have things that whether it was before we came to Christ or it could even be stumbling after we've come to Christ. We know what slavery to sin is like. We know what slavery sometimes, some of you more than others, uh, to, to toxic relationships is like. People who manipulate and mistreat, maybe even abuse. And, and some know what it's like to be addicted. And, and I don't because coffee is not addictive. But, you know... Some people may have some... <laughs> I mentioned coffee. That's some people. Uh, some people may know what that's like. We all know what it's like when Satan tries to pull you back in and suck you back in. It doesn't matter if you're talking about really serious things or whether you're talking about just, you know, you're trying to kick the ice cream every night habit. Pull you right back in. Same thing is happening here. And it is so easy to get taken back in. You would think that Israel would not have this problem under this circumstance, but we're going to keep reading because it's not that simple. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Let me find, read it in my Bible here. They lift, lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it's because there are is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? They got the whining thing down. That's actually pretty good, isn't it? I think that's pretty sharp. What's the matter, Moses? You couldn't find a cemetery in Cairo. Now you've got to drive us out here. What are you doing? That sounds like something I might have said on summer vacation when it was getting really hot and the drive was too long. You know what I mean? They, they say to Moses, you just brought us out here to die. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? That's a stupid question. I know there aren't supposed to be any stupid questions. But there are some stupid questions, okay? I know that people like to say there aren't any, but they need to hang around with me because I've heard them. I'm not saying from here, okay? I'm just saying I've heard them. I was probably, you know, overheard them at the coffee shop. Verse 12. Is it not, or is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For... For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? It would have been better. And that's what they were saying. You remember, we started out in in Exodus 3 with God saying, I have heard the cries of Israel. I've heard the cries of your people. They have been begging me to get them out of this slavery. But now that things are hard, now that things are a little bit scary, they're sitting there going... I told you I loved my old job. I liked it. Cleaning that Pharaoh's toenails was awesome. You know, and sometimes there was Fremunda cheese and we had pizza. Some of you will get that joke. But 
they're sitting there saying, this was wonderful. Later on when they're in the wilderness, they bring this back up and they go, well, at least we had fish and cucumbers in Egypt. At least I could do this and at least I could do that. And every time I read it, I'm like, yeah, and you had a whip at your back. And we are so tempted sometimes to go back, forgetting how miserable we were and why we cried out to the Lord, oh, Lord, save me. We are so wimpy sometimes, aren't we? It's not new. It's an old problem. This is, this is what happened. Moses, trying to encourage them, says, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. It's pretty cool because he doesn't even know what God's about to do yet, does he? It's pretty awesome. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Now, what Moses said is great, okay? He tells them, listen, you are worried about nothing. These guys are coming down on us, and they don't know this is Custer's last stand. They're about to go down as nothing but a footnote of history, and we're going to walk across here. The Lord's going to fight. You just stand there and watch. Now, I think that's a pretty awesome, you know, that's like a coach in a locker room at halftime, isn't it, what Moses says here? A good one. But God actually sees a little bit of a problem with it. And I never really caught... Well, I kind of did, but not, not to the extent that I caught it this time. I, I looked at this and I thought, this is kind of interesting. God, This sounds great to me, what Moses said. And I would have thought that was like an A+, plus, right? God says not enough, not good enough, Moses. Let's look at it. Because it, this, this surprised me in the text. This comes from the message because I like the way that it's, it's worded here. So uh, Exodus 14, 15 to 18. God said to Moses, why cry out to me? That's kind of funny when you consider the context. Why are you sitting there crying is kind of what he's saying. Speak up to the Israelites. Order them to get moving. Hold your staff high. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Split the sea. Israelites will walk through the sea on dry ground. Meanwhile, I'll make sure the Egyptians keep up their stubborn chase. I'll use Pharaoh and his entire army, his chariots and horsemen, to put my glory on display so that the Egyptians will realize that I am God. He says, what are you sitting around crying for? Let's get going. It's not good enough to sit there and be in awe of my power. I actually want you to move like it's going to happen. And I think that's important for us. Because we know that God is incredible and we know what He can do and we want it done, right? We pray that God will reach our community. We pray that our neighbors will come to Christ. We pray that we will be stronger Christians. But so often we sit at the side of the sea and we sit there on our duff. I worked so hard to find a good word for but. Uh, and I said it. It's duff is what I settled on, okay? So we sit there on our duff and we may sing and we may pray and we cry out to the Lord and we think that's exactly what God wants because it sounded good when Moses said it, didn't it? I thought it sounded good. You just stand back and watch. I thought that's, that's pretty cool. But God said, mm-mm, I didn't bring you out here to stand out and watch. I brought you to walk. And I want you to walk. Later, he'll put them to the same test. Before they can go into the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan. And that time, he doesn't just say walk. That time he says... This time, I'm not even going to part the waters until your feet actually touch the water. Because I'm going to make you put your faith out there before I move. And we might say, well, that seems kind of stingy, God. 
Why, why are you putting us to a test like that? Because faith that is tested, Peter says, is refined. But how is gold refined? By fire. Sometimes you've got to start walking in order to see God work. And we are not like that, okay? We're more like the Egyptians. We kind of want God to serve, and then when He brings us the lunch, we'll thank Him for it. What God is saying here is, you know, sometimes you've got to get up and make your own sandwich. You want to see something that I'll, you can thank me for. Get up. Don't just sit there. And that's, that's what He's trying to get us to see. Whining, they tried, okay? They tried whining. They whined a lot, okay? They whined so much that two of the elders later on were named Julio and Gallo. Some of you older ones get it. But they should have gotten it on this side over here. I don't know who they're trying to fool. They know what I'm talking about. But, the, but they, were, they were whining and whining. Paul in Philippians, this is gospel moment. Paul in Philippians says, Complain and grumble about nothing. Nothing. He goes on. He says, because you don't complain and because you don't whine, you will stand out, you will shine like stars in the universe. You will be so different from the world around you because you don't whine. Well, I don't know about you, but i still got a little bit of that in me. You know, I still drive, so you know as long as I'm driving, there's a little bit of that, that that's happening. Okay? I don't like traffic. And it does, the amount doesn't matter. It's the rudeness I don't like. You know, people cutting you off and doing crazy things. The, uh, the, the world is so much in us. And so we get sometimes a bit whiny. But gospel people don't whine. Gospel people let God show them what is excellent, what is praiseworthy, what is true. Philippians 4. And we're going to look at those things. Moses had the right attitude. He just needed to kick him a little bit further is what God was saying. Now, don't give him that much slack, Moses. I think that's really what he's saying. You're being too easy on him. But Moses had the right idea. This problem is not a problem when we're with God. So we don't whine. Sitting around doesn't save anybody. They weren't going to be saved just by sitting on the shore because God didn't part the sea just to do a little water trick. He intended them to walk across it. He intended the, the Egyptians to follow them and for it to, to cave back in over them. None of that happens till they get moving. Some of the things we're praying for right now won't happen until we get moving. And it's not God's weakness. It's our lack of movement. He wants to see us move first. He wants to work, but He wants to work through a working people. And so we need to get busy. Real faith, saving faith gets moving and it walks the walk. That's what James talks about. He says, don't be hearers only. If you do, you deceive yourselves. You're just lying to yourself if you think all that, that Christianity is is hearing it, but then not actually living it out. Even the world knows better than that. They, they call that hypocrisy. And they're right to do so, because if that's all we're doing, that's, that's really what we are. There's one other gospel moment in all of this. Not just the way He changes our attitude, not just the way that He promises that He will actually see us through all of these things if we will get moving. But Paul brings this moment up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, this is from the message as well, Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. 
They went through the waters in a baptism like ours. Have you ever thought about the crossing of the Red Sea that way? He says it's like a baptism because they did have to die to their fear, didn't they? They had to put their faith in the God who led them. They had to trust that He would take them, as Paul words it, from death to life. That's how Paul talks about our baptism and our conversion to Christ, that He translates us from death to life. Well, they couldn't do that until they got moving. And Paul says, that's the way your baptism is. As Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life, they all ate and drank the same identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, that's later on, God's fountain for them that stayed with them wherever they were. And the rock was Christ. Paul looks back at this moment and others in Israel's history and says, friends, that's gospel. And it's not just gospel, that's Jesus. When Moses, by faith, takes his staff and parts the waters, it wasn't Moses, it was Christ and the power of God's Word that had spoken that if He did it by faith, this would happen. And it's the same thing with us. And Paul says it's the same with your baptism. It may seem like something that's unnecessary. Moses' staff, frankly to me, seems like an unnecessary act, but God wanted to see faith actually doing something. And baptism's the same thing. Is it faith? Yes. Is it faith we're saved by? Yes. Is it grace? Yes. Is it our work? Nope. It's all the work of Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 2, 11 and 12. But does it have to happen? Do we have to actually say, God, my faith is actually going to start moving me in obedience to where I do something about it? Yeah. Just like standing at the edge of the water then, God said, not good enough just to watch me work. I want you to move. He tells us the same thing. Paul says it's the same moment at our own baptism. God is just waiting for us to go from, yes, I believe, to yes, I believe and I'm going to live it. Baptism is the I'm going to live it and this is where I start. We cross the waters. We go in a dead people, threatened and formerly enslaved. And we come out a living people, free and free indeed, just like Israel as they came out the other side of the Red Sea. It's an incredible moment. And the Lord says to you, so why are you just sitting there? Crying's not going to do it. Whining won't do it. Sitting and watching won't do it. What are you waiting for? Today's the day that you need to cross that border. If today's the day that you need to be baptized into Christ to live in His life, we'll give you that moment as we stand and as we sing.